chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. That's where we're going to be looking today. If you are uh, not used to looking at a Bible, that's page 983 in the Pew Bibles provided. We'll have it for you up here on the screen. But it's 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through the end of the chapter, the seven verses we're going to be looking at today. We're concluding our series through the first section of 1 Corinthians. This is kind of the end of the unit of thought that took up the first four chapters. And we'll take a break before, Lord willing, we come back and look further in the book. But kind of set the scene once again. This is really important for this last section for you to understand the flow of the argument. What has Paul been saying? Why has he been saying it? How has he been saying it? Corinth was a very modern city. Corinth was the most modern city in the ancient world. Corinth was made up of diverse political factions, religious factions. There were temples. There were temple prostitutes. There was idol worship. There was extreme wealth. Everything about Corinth screamed modernity. It was, uh, it, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, many people have kind of parodied it as the first letter to the Californians or the first letter to the Houstonians. Or anytime you find a major city, you're going to find the kind of behavior that was in Corinth. The deepest problem here was that the problems in Corinth had bled into the church. Corinth as a city was known for its traveling teachers. A teacher would come into town and you would pay for the privilege of being a student of that teacher. You would give them, you'd give them patronage, you'd pay them, and in exchange, you were allowed to be called a disciple of so-and-so. And the more prestigious a teacher you could find, the more you'd pay, and the bigger person you could find to be a disciple of, the more important you would be. And so they were constantly looking for who they could be attached to, how they could show their importance, how they could puff themselves up. That was what it was like in the city. But of course, when a Christian comes into a church, they don't enter a church in a vacuum. We bring our culture with us. We bring the sins of our day with us. And it's only through the power of the word of God that we can break those things. And so the me first attitude, the who am I going to be siding with attitude, the entire worldview that was full in Corinth came into the church. And so some of them said, well, I am a follower of Peter. Some said, well, I'm a follower of Paul. Some said, I follow Apollos. And they would each one pick somebody and said, I'm on that team, and I don't want to have anything to do with anybody that's not on that team. And Paul says, you are a bunch of infants. He says, spiritually, you're acting like children. It's little babies that cry out, mama, dada, I want to play with you. I don't want to play with them. He says, if you're a Christian, you've got to understand that it's not about the person, it's about the God that's the God of both of you. I told you before, you know, it's a, uh, fortunately, uh, when uh, this last happened here, you know, Brother Grigsby left, our, our, our church didn't really have a great problem with losing a lot of people, but a lot of times that does happen, right? A pastor leaves and the people from that church will leave too. They'll follow. They're looking for a person rather than following God. They, uh, you know, we, we get so caught up. This happens a lot of times in churches when the uh, pastor's out of town. People won't come for the guest speaker or whatever. They say, well, I'm, you know. They, they get so caught up in people that they forget about God. And that is because that's what our culture is. Our culture is even worse than Corinth. We live in a celebrity culture. 
It's all about celebrity. It's all about what you know about this person, about your connections to this person, about name dropping, about elevating your status. And that bleeds into churches. It bleeds into churches badly, you know. And, of course, it's, it's part of the, the megachurch movement and celebrity pastors and different things. And you can tell a lot about somebody by the way that they react to that. But nevertheless, Paul says, you think that you guys are so wise. You think that you're so educated. You say, well, we are attached to the very best teacher in town. And he says, you're a bunch of babies talking a bunch of baby talk, undermining the church that God died for. And so Paul says, I came to you not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the word of God, for I determined to not know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said, you think you're so wise, you think you're so elevated, but let me tell you, the foundation of the Christian life is power through weakness. The foundation of the Christian life is power through humility. The idea of Christianity is fundamentally that God saved you by dying, that God conquered death by giving up his own life, that Jesus came and Jesus gave up all the privileges of heaven and emptied himself. And being found in the form as a man became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And he says, if you think you're so smart, Do you think that you can improve on God's plan? If God didn't choose to save the world through wisdom or through strength, although God is all wise and all strong, but God chose to save the world through weakness and humility, how do you think God intends to use you? How do you think God intends for things to be done in his churches? It's not through strength. It's not through wisdom. It's not through anything except you laying down your life. Now, this is, of course, an ongoing problem in lots of places. As human beings, our sin is pride. Fundamentally, every time you sin, it's pride. If you tell a lie, it's because you feel like you know what people ought to know and what they shouldn't know. If you kill somebody, you feel like you deserve to decide who lives and who dies. You steal, you believe you deserve who has what and who has this. Fundamentally, our problem is pride. When we judge other people, he's going to get into that in a second. When we judge other people, you believe that you're the judge. You believe you know what's right. You believe you know what's wrong. And you're going to tell people how it's going to be. That's pride. It's arrogance. It's, 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 it's a delusions of grandeur, delusions of deity. Fundamentally, we want to be gods. That was how Satan tempted Eve in the garden. He said, you will be as gods knowing good and evil. You want to be gods. You don't want to be dependent on God. You want to make your own decisions. You want to make your own way. You want to do things your way. And in that great temptation, mankind gave in. And that was the same problem in Corinth. They wanted to make their own way. They wanted to be their own gods. They wanted to be strong. They wanted to be smart. They wanted to be lifted up. And Paul says, again, you're fools. You're judging other people. You are lifting yourselves up. You're proving that you don't know the first thing about Christianity. He says, well, you're yet carnal, whereas there is envying and strife and divisions among you. Are you not carnal and walk as men? He says, as long as you are caught up in envy of each other, fighting with each other, being divided, 
He says, you are babes in Christ. Then he says, let's look at how things really are. He says, you are God's garden. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. He says, I came and I established your church. That's true. You know, I planted your church. He said, and then Apollos came in after me and Apollos watered. And he doesn't go into detail, but of course other people had come in and fertilized and watered and weeded. Other men of God had come through and worked in that field. But he said, God's the one that makes it grow. Then he says, you're God's temple. You're the place where God lives. I laid the foundation, Paul says, of Jesus. But on that foundation, everybody needs to build in the way that will be glorifying to God. Everybody's responsible for their own work, but everybody's working on the same building. And so when Christians, people get caught up in divisions, people get caught up in what's best for them, people get caught up in all these different things, they've forgotten that nothing belongs to us. He says, what do you have that you didn't receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Whenever I look at somebody and say, oh, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be around that person. I think that I'm better than the other person. And if there's anything about me that's better than the other person, how did I get that? I got it from God. You know? So why can I brag about something that God handed me? If I walked up to uh, Darren and I gave Darren $1,000, Darren, look at that and say, wow, look at me. Look how hard of a worker I am. Look at how smart I am. I just got $1,000. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Because how did he get that? It was a gift. So can you pat yourself on the back and say, you know, I'm very spiritual. (laughs) Any spirituality that you have, any relationship with God that you have, how did you get that? Jesus, a gift. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, here's what he's saying fundamentally, is that most people in most churches have it entirely wrong. We think that a church is like a corporation. You know, you want to work your way up to be the CEO, or you want to work your way up to this, you want to do that. You want to be in control. You want people to look at you and say, wow, look at him or her. You want to be in charge. You want power. And Paul says, you're a waiter at a restaurant. (laughs) Coming back from Vider the other day, Joe and I stopped at Kelly's, and uh, we just, it was important to us. He got the chicken fried steak. Um, And it was, uh, so it was an important spiritual uh, sidetrack for us to stop in Alvin and Kelly's. It's a big deal. Um, And our waiter was not the greatest waiter that I've ever had. <laughs> um, the restaurant was not very busy, but he kept getting kind of distracted. you know. And so uh, he came in. Joe was right behind me, um, but he had to take a phone call. And so I went in to get a table, and I sat down and ordered my drink. And then six or seven minutes later, you know, Joe came in immediately behind me before the guy had even walked off. He was sitting down. But six or seven minutes later, I'm about halfway through with my tea, and Joe flags him down and says, could I have something to drink too? You know, This guy's just kind of all over the place. And he doesn't bring things quickly, just uh, is kind of just not responsive. Okay. Now, a good waiter is somebody who takes things that do not belong to him and quickly brings them to the person that they belong to. Okay? That's what a waiter does. 
an airplane, you know. Like I, men- I mentioned last week, but Colleen and I, we're going on Southwest, so we'll have peanuts and stuff, pretzels, whatever. And uh, you sit on there, and that stewardess, steward, it's required of stewards that a man be found faithful, that steward or stewardess does not own any peanuts or any pretzels. They have the peanuts and pretzels that belong to Southwest Airlines that Southwest Airlines has said to give to me. They pass them along. You, this is a big mind-shattering moment for some people, you do not own anything. What do you have that you did not receive? You say, well, you know, I give my tithe, I give my 10%, and then the rest is mine for me to do what I want. Well, no, you've got to step back. Everything you have belongs to God. God says, you're my steward, you're my manager. All I want you to do is pass it on. Now, you can pass it on in some ways to buy yourself food or different things. That's, that's an acceptable use of it. But what I'm saying is that as soon as we get an owner's mentality, we start to shatter things. Have you seen that happen in a church? A uh, church needs to do something, needs to change something, needs to work on something, and people start to talk about themselves like, well, this has been my church for this amount of time, and I've given this amount of money, and I just this is my church. I tell you, if you want to have your own church, you can, but it's very expensive. The Bible says Jesus bought it with his blood. And since as far as I know, none of you have ever died to buy a church, and I haven't either, none of us have a church. It's Jesus' church. And so in our whole life, we have to have the mentality that we own nothing, that nothing is ours, that we are Christ's slaves. He said, just pass it on. And I wonder to what, to what extent we have that attitude. And Paul says to the Corinthians, he gets very sarcastic in the chapter we looked at last week. He says, it's incredible. You know, he says, now you are full, now you are rich, now you have reigned as kings without us. He said, I look at you Corinthians and I see the things you do and I hear the things you say and it's amazing. You've got all the riches of heaven, you're kings without us. He says, Paul... And he says, and Paul says, Peter and Apollos and the other apostles and I, we're out here working and slaving away and being beaten and tortured for our faith and giving up everything we have for Jesus every day. And all of you are seated in the palace. You have everything you want. He says, and I would to God that you did reign so that we could reign with you. He says sarcastically, oh, look, you're kings already. How often do we have that mentality? Well, I've got everything I want. I'm comfortable. I'm just going to coast from here. Paul says, you've got nothing. (laughs) Everything you have, it's time to pass it along. So after he's been sarcastic with them, after he's been hard on them, after he said, we are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are honorable you are honorable, but we are despised. Even under this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it, being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things under this day. He says, we are the trash people scrape off a plate. We're treated so badly, but you're all kings. And at the end of all that, 
he picks up in our text here in verse 14. Would you read through it with me? He says, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who will bring you into remembrance my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some are puffed up as though I would not come to you, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know, Father, that we are constantly drawn to the temptation of pride, the temptation of self-sufficiency, the temptation of arrogance. We know that we are constantly drawn to all the wrong things in all the wrong ways. We know that just like the Corinthians, we have a temptation to not be faithful, to not be reliable, to not be trustworthy of the things that you've given to us. And just like the Corinthians, when challenged, we become angry, we become belligerent, and we forget that you, Heavenly Father, are trying to do something good in us, that you're trying to transform us for your glory. So I just ask, Father, as we read your word again today, as we study it closely, that you'd help us to see the reasons that you correct us, the reasons that you challenge us, that we would serve you better. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I remember the first time that I found out that my mom couldn't physically hurt me anymore. Um, we were about nine, I think. I, mean, I don't know. I, we just moved uh, to Manville. We were moving to Manville. And I was in the car, well, we were unloading some stuff, and then we were going back and forth between our old house and the new house. And I was sitting in the car, and Travis was climbing on the hood of the car, being the little crazy hoodlum that he was, and pounding on the windshield and stuff. And I started the car and turned on the windshield wipers to try to knock him, squirt the windshield wipers and stuff. Well, my mom came out, and I guess thought I was going to run him over or something, because the car was running and Travis was on the car. And I don't think that I had ever seen her so mad in my entire life. Normally, I think she had not been able to physically hurt me for some time before that, but I didn't know it, because she wouldn't try. She'd say, I'm going to call your father. <laughs> yes, ma'am, no more. But then she came and she uh, you know, took me to this kitchen stool and had me bend over the kitchen stool and got a broom handle. And took this broom handle and tried to whack me with it. And I started biting down on my tongue as hard as I could. Because I knew if I started laughing, it was going to be really, really bad. <laughs> but I couldn't feel it. <laughs> I didn't even know what she was doing back there. Um, I think it was a hollow, like one of those hollow plastic uh, broom handles. And she was just not, not hurting me. And I don't know... I think I was successful in not laughing um, because I'm pretty sure that I would remember if I had gotten caught laughing um, because I, Dad was going to be home later on, you know, and I don't think I would have gotten by with it. But I remember, I remember that day really clearly. <laughs> it kind of changes the way you think, you know. You realize that um, 
she was not able to have enough strength to hurt me. You come to, kind of come to the point, too, where you uh, learn that my parents always, they send home the forms, the, the corporal punishment forms in school. And my parents would always sign that form and send that in. And I don't know exactly what year it was I realized that they never used that form. They never actually did it. But eventually you come to know that too. You realize nobody at the school is going to whoop me. It's okay. It didn't come up a lot, but you, you come to realize that. And the way that you start to handle different situations, you, sort of, you think about things differently. Paul here is really talking about who he is and what he's doing. He said, he, he's making the point that, like, he, he said in this last little section, he said, I am coming, if the Lord will, and I will know not the speech of them that are puffed up, but the power, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod, or in love, and in a spirit of meekness? Now, I don't think he means by a rod, he means a broomstick, you know? And I don't think he's actually going to go around whooping them. But he means, am I going to come to you with the force of discipline? Or am I going to come to you in love? He says, you've got thousands of instructors in Christ. You've got lots of teachers, lots of babysitters is actually what that word means. But you've only got one father. He says, there's only one of you that, there's only one person that came and started your church that's known you from the very beginning. He said, and I'm coming home. And how do you want me to come? Do you want me to come with love and a spirit of meekness? Or do you want me to come with a rod? Let's look back at the verse verse here in our little section. Let's look in verse 14. I'm going to try to sweep this all together for you. He says, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. He says, I've been writing these things. I've been writing about how you're a bunch of children. You say, well, that makes me a little bit ashamed, you know. If I say that you're acting like a child, that you, your hair stands up a little bit, you say, well, you can't talk to me like that. Say, if you care more about people, if you get caught up in what people think, or you get caught up in who's who, I'm saying that spiritually, you're a little baby. So I'm not going to let them hold me. You kind of get a little defensive. And I, I mean, I can, I can demonstrate this really well. If I say... I already made the point. You know, everybody knows that people get caught up in who pastors are and when guest speakers are here or whatever. I'm not coming. Paul says, you're a baby. Paul says, you know, if you uh, won't go to a class because of who the teacher is, if you won't go to a church because the pastor doesn't do things the way you want, whatever, you're a baby spiritually. You don't have enough maturity to see that it's not about people, it's about God. If you don't like that, you just got to read the first four chapters of Corinthians. And this may be a hypothetical problem for you, but for the Corinthians, this was a real problem. They said, well, I'm only going to people in the Paul school. I'm only going to Peter's. I'm only going to these. And so Paul gets them really upset. And then he says, you all think that you're so wise, but you're never going to learn anything until you admit that you're a bunch of fools. If I call you a fool, how does that make you feel then? Say, you think you know how everything ought to be done. You think you know how things ought to be. He says, but you are just a fool. That kind of makes you a little bit defensive, too. I'm not even talking to you, but your hair on the back of your neck saying everything. Is he talking? Does he think he's talking about me? Paul says then at the end of all this, he says, I'm not writing these things 
to make you ashamed. Literally, I'm not writing these things to make you hang your head. I'm writing these things to admonish you, to correct you, to get your attention. Paul says, things are bad already, but they're going to get worse. When, I, when you get punished when you're a kid, we had this Anastasia, uh, this is the truth, 10 months old, she can kind of walk a few steps and, and she, gets to, she knows it's faster to crawl. Uh, she sit down and crawl and then walk a few steps. And she crawls and you could put her in a room this size with one electrical outlet and she'd find it in a heartbeat. She'd just beeline to it and try to get it. And she, you know, she always has her fingers in her mouth and so she wants to take her wet hand and stick it at the outlet. And uh, you know, We've got all the outlets and everything covered up at the house, but she finds them, and she comes and tries to, tries to get a hold of them. And so when I take her away, and I pick her up, and I say, you know. My goal is not that I want her to feel bad. My goal is I don't want her to get hurt. And if at the house we let her play with outlets because they've got covers on them, then sometime she's going to be somewhere with an outlet that doesn't have a cover on it and, you know, get herself hurt, stick something in there. Paul says, I'm not correcting you. I'm not swatting you because I want you to feel bad. He said, I'm doing it because I want to warn you because something very serious is at stake. When we get caught up in factions, we get caught up in divisions, we get caught up in people, it's not my relationship with a particular person that's at stake, it's the witness of the gospel. I'm saying Christianity is not true. I'm saying the power of God is not enough to change people. I'm saying that I don't believe that God works in all different kinds of people. That is a lot at stake. The gospel is at stake. You know, Jesus said, uh, in John 18, he prayed that they would be one so that all people would know that God sent him. There's only one thing in the entire Bible it says that you can do to cause people to believe in Jesus, and that's to be united. So Paul says, I'm warning you. That word warn means admonish. I'm correcting. I'm spanking you over this. He says, I'm warning you as my beloved sons. He said, you're not my enemy, you're my child. You know what? I'm not mad at you like I'm mad at somebody cutting me up on the high, cutting me off on the highway. I am brokenhearted that you are doing all these things that are going to be so destructive. He says, "I'm heartbroken. I'm disappointed. I'm ashamed. I'm not writing these things so that you'll be ashamed. I'm writing them because I'm a father who's brokenhearted over his children." Now, as a Christian, can you kind of get in that mindset? You know, the Bible says that a fool can't be corrected. A wise, reprove a wise man and he'll love you. Repro- rebuke a fool and he'll hate you. We talked about that before. You can tell a lot about somebody by how they take correction. If when somebody corrects you, you get mad. That's kind of the default human response, isn't it? If somebody corrects you, you get angry. You're a child and a fool. But if you, when somebody corrects you in love, you know, through the gospel, you realize that it's not to make you ashamed, but to warn you, to admonish you. When you become teachable, your whole world suddenly changes. And you know that. You know there are some people that they can be doing something wrong and you don't dare say anything to them because the way they're going to react. And there are some people 
that can. You know, you can talk to them and they say, okay, you know, and they can correct or at least take into account what you're saying. Paul says, I'm not saying these things because I want to make you mad. Saying, I'm saying these things because I want to admonish you. I want to warn you. I want to do this for your good. He says in the next verse here, for though you have 10,000 instructors, that word instructor is a slave who was responsible for watching over the, the children up until they each reached the age of majority. So although you've got 10,000 different instructors, you, know, you may have thousands of babysitters in Christ, yet have you not many fathers? So you, get, you may have a lot of babysitters, but you've only got one father. And when I was teaching high school, I cared about my kids. You know, I really wanted them to succeed. I drove all over the state to go watch football games and soccer games. And I don't know the first thing about soccer. They had to kind of keep an eye on it, watch the faces of other people to know if they were winning or losing. So I know if I was happy or not. You know, I don't know the first thing about soccer. But I would travel to go watch those kids, and it made a big difference to them. You know, uh, there was a game in Madisonville or something, and I drove up there uh, after we had a lock-in here, you know, drove up all night and drove all morning to get there, and I was about to fall over. But when those kids saw me, they were just, you know, you know, trying to play, juniors and seniors waving, you know, Mr. Gatlin, Mr. Gatlin, can you pray for us at halftime? You know, they're so excited. Um, And I cared about those kids a lot. But the way I cared about those kids is nothing compared to the way that I care about that little baby. (laughs) The little baby that's my baby. There's no comparison. Paul says, you know, there are a lot of people that have come, a lot of people who have cared about you, a lot of people who have worked with you. He said, but you've only got one father. (laughs) He said, these other people, they may kind of dance around it, they may do this, they may do that, but my heart is broken over the way that you children are acting. He says, for in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. You need to understand, of course, father here is not an authoritative term. Jesus said in Matthew, call no man father, you know, because he meant in the sense of don't look to anybody in the spiritual realm as having authority over you like a father in the ancient world had authority over his children. There's not that kind of do this and then do it. That's not how the church works. That's not how Christianity works. Jesus says the greatest among you will be a servant. Here, he's using father in a different way. He's not using father in an authoritative, now you listen to me way. He's saying, I'm somebody who's correcting you because I care about you. I'm the one who first brought the gospel to you, and I'm brokenhearted now. You don't have many fathers, for I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Imitators is really what that word means. He said, I'm your father, and just like little kids always want to imitate their father, he says, I'm telling you to imitate me. Now, here's an interesting question. Would you have the guts to tell somebody, you want to be a better Christian? Just watch me. Just copy what I'm doing. Paul can say, as far as I know, I'm following Jesus as faithfully as I can. He said, I'm sharing my faith, I'm praying, I'm reading my scripture, you know, I'm, I'm doing everything that I can. I'm free from known sin. So if you want to be a better Christian, follow me. And I wonder if we put a little sign-up sheet that said, okay, on the back hallway, I'm going to put up a sign-up sheet that's going to say, example Christians. I want you to sign your name up if you're comfortable with me telling people, if you want to be a Christian, be like them. 
You ever heard the, uh, you know, the, the problems that parents get into with their kids and they realize their kids are just like them? You uh, get so frustrated. That's why my mom and I butted heads, this little, just uh, through the same person, you know, <laughs> two different versions of the same person living in the same house. You're 13, 14 years old. <laughs> and when you are just like somebody, you amplify their flaws you bring out their strengths. So as a Christian, Paul here, later on, he spells it out a little more. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. He says, I'm following Jesus and I'm copying Jesus. So if you copy me, you'll be on the right track. That sounds so conceited to us. That sounds so bad to us. But if you can't say that, then you're a hypocrite. So I wonder How many of us could say that our lives are examples of what it means to be a Christ follower? Paul says, you better get to that point, because if you don't, then I better warn you that you're not going to be all that you need to be. As we go in verse 17, he says, for this cause, because of this, because I want you to imitate me, I have sent unto you Timothy, who's my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. He says, You need to be like me, and to help you do that, I'm going to send you Timothy, my beloved son. Just like you're my children, Timothy's my child in the ministry, and he's going to show you what I'm like so that you can learn what Jesus is like. So not just is Paul an example, Paul says Timothy's an example for you too. Apparently there are lots of people who had the maturity to serve as examples. And so again, I wonder, if we had to find somebody, how many people could we find that said, yes, this is what a Christian looks like? Or how many people could we have to find and we'd say, yes, this is what a Christian looks like, except? No, I really want you to be like this person, except for the language they use. I really want you to be like this person, except for their temper. I really want you to be like this person, except for their impatience. I really want you to be like this person, except they never share the gospel. I really want you to be like this person, except they're greedy and stingy. I really want you to be like this person, except. How many times would we have to do that? And how many people could we say, hey, you follow them like they follow Jesus? I pointed to Miss Gladys. See, somebody who's an example of what it means to be a Christian. But how many people are you really comfortable with that? Not many. So he says, look, for this cause I sent you Timothy so you can learn how I'm teaching people to be everywhere in every church. There's some things that are different in different churches, but some things are timeless. Now, some of you are puffed up as though I would not come. Some of you don't believe that I'm coming. You're arrogant. You think, oh, Paul is never going to be here again. We need to do things our own way. He says, but I will come to you shortly. If the Lord will, he says, Lord willing, I'll be there very soon. And I'll know not the speech of them that are puffed up, but the power. He says, I'm not going to read their letters anymore and hear about what they did. Then I'm going to see who they are. And of course, the context is still follow me as I follow Christ. He says, I'm going to see what kind of lives are these false teachers really living? Do they really have power over sin in their life? Do they really have power to follow Jesus in their life? Or are they a whole lot of smoke and no fire? He said, these people are telling you to follow them. These people are saying they're your examples. These people are saying that they're the ones that you need to see. He says, but I'm coming and I'm going to see not their words, but their power. 
He says, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. The place where God rules, it's not about who can talk the biggest game, who can associate themselves the best, who can put on the best front. It's the ones who have the power to follow God. It's the ones who have the power where you can say, follow me as I follow Christ. Not this kind of infancy and division, not this kind of worldly wisdom, not this kind of self-sufficiency, not this kind of pride, but being a steward, God's power flowing through you. And Paul says, I'm coming to you, Corinthians. He says, and what will you? What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love in the spirit of meekness? Now you see what his point is. He says, your father spiritually is coming home. He says, and when I come, do you want me to come taking my belt off as I come through the door, or do you want me to come with a present? Do you want me to pick you up, or do you want me to just watch you? He says, how are you going to respond? He says, because I'm ready to come in power. I'm ready to show my apostolic authority. You know, I'm ready to take the Bible and open up the Bible and say, this is how it's going to be. Yeah. 